What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I'm your host, JT. Got a really exciting episode for you guys tonight, man. I've been waiting all day to do this show, man. We're going to be talking about Desmond Ritter, Derek Carr. I got game breakdowns, Dolphins, Eagles, Lions, Ravens. Also got them for college football. We got Penn State and Ohio State. Tennessee, Bama, Utah, USC. We're going to be discussing Jimbo Fisher's hot seat status right now because, boy, you talk about coaches on the hot seat, the seat doesn't get any hotter for Jimbo Fisher. Anytime he sits down, he has to blow on that thing with a ceiling fan before he even thinks about sending his hand pods down, boy. And then Brock Bauer's injury impact. You know, I think him getting injured is a really big blow to Georgia's hopes of being able to three-peat this season. A lot of interesting things to get into on tonight's show. Before we start, if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, welcome. I appreciate you for tuning in. Leave a like, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available on all podcasting platforms. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. All you got to do is go to whichever podcasting service you like to use, type in the JT Sports Podcast, and it will pop up. Or you can go down to the description down below, and there will be the links to the Apple and Spotify versions of the podcast. Desmond Ritter. Stunk up the joint last week, and the Falcons lost to the Washington Commanders, man. This fool threw three interceptions. And on one interception that he threw in the red zone, Arthur Smith had a really funny facial expression, man. Like, Arthur Smith could not believe it. And you know, Arthur Smith better find a way to get this quarterback situation handled before he ends up being out of a job. Because Desmond Ritter... Is not a good quarterback, all right? There's no more excuses that any Falcons fans can make for Desmond Ritter at this point. We've seen enough of Desmond Ritter to understand what he is at this point. And that is a really inconsistent quarterback. Now, when Desmond Ritter is playing at his best, okay, he's a solid game manager. He does have a pretty good amount of athleticism. But the problem with that is that he rarely is playing at his best. His best game was against the Houston Texans. Outside of that, every game that he's played has been either mid or god-awful. And I don't think that it gets any worse than the performance that we saw out of this man against the Washington Commanders, man. Three interceptions, and this was the man who was supposed to be Alex Smith 2.0. Like I told you guys, getting compared to Alex Smith in the year 2023 is not a compliment. It's an insult. That means that you won't play bad enough to lose the game, but you won't play good enough to win the game. But in Desmond Ritter's case, you can't even compare him to Alex Smith because Alex Smith never gave the game away like he was Santa Claus giving out early Christmas presents like how Desmond Ritter was giving out turnovers to the Washington Commanders defense. A Commanders defense, by the way, that has underperformed for the majority of this season. Listen, Arthur Smith has to make a change at quarterback because if not, he's going to find himself out of a job. Desmond Ritter is not a quarterback that I'm willing to live and die for, all right? And if you're Arthur Smith, you know that your job security is in question. You don't know if you're going to be back for the year 2024. 
So why are you still choosing to ride with Desmond Ritter? Okay, save me the whole nonsense about, oh, he's still fairly young. He's still the equivalent to a rookie quarterback. He got outplayed by Sam Howell, man. Sam Howell is in his second year also, and he's looked way better than Desmond Ritter this season. And it's not even close. Arthur Smith, I think he's a very talented head coach. I think he's a pretty solid play caller. He may not be the best play caller at times. Falcons fans criticize him in the play calling at times also, but I think Desmond Ritter is really the main reason why the Falcons aren't a better football team. The Atlanta Falcons are 3-3 three and three right now. They easily could be 4-2 and two if Desmond Ritter was better. And you got Taylor Heineke on the bench who is an upgrade from Desmond Ritter. Not a significant upgrade, but at least Taylor Heineke has the ability to win you a few games with the talent that you have. Like, you got people calling Kyle Pitts a bust when Kyle Pitts isn't even a bust. He's not the problem. And the problem is the fool who he has throwing him the football. Desmond Ritter just isn't good at getting his playmakers the ball. Like, Drake London, Kyle Pitts are really phenomenal talents. You got B. John Robinson. Desmond Ritter is overthrowing him. Like, Desmond Ritter just sucks, man. He sucks. The Falcons aren't going to make the playoffs with Desmond Ritter at quarterback. And this is a defense that has played at a really high level. Imagine how better this defense could play if this offense was more efficient. Desmond Ritter has six touchdowns and six interceptions. He's been nothing special. He's been a below average quarterback. The Falcons need to move on from him. He may have a couple of good performances here and there, but for the most part, he's a below average quarterback. Now, if he improves and he turns this thing around and he makes me eat my words, I have no problem coming on here and admitting that I'm wrong. But in the first couple of games, pretty much the first half of the season, we've seen enough of Desmond Ritter to know that this guy just isn't going to cut it. That's the long-term answer at quarterback for the Falcons. And word on the street is that there are some Falcon scouts who went up to Colorado and they want those Sanders boys. And I can understand why they want them because they definitely need Shadur. Shadur Sanders right now, to me, looks like a better quarterback than what Desmond Ritter is. And I know he hasn't played a single snap in the NFL, but damn. You mean to tell me you think Shadur Sanders will be throwing three interceptions against the Washington Commanders also? I mean, Desmond Ritter just is not it at quarterback, man. You got to make a change if you're Arthur Smith. You said that Marcus Mariota was kind of the reason why you didn't have a lot of success last year. And the problem with Marcus Mariota was that he couldn't take care of the football. Anytime you were in a late game situation with Mariota at quarterback, he always found the way to give the game up. Desmond Ritter, same thing goes for him. I don't care about how young he is. The thing with Desmond Ritter is that he was a third-round pick. The upside for him is not that high. So even if Desmond Ritter turns it around, at best, you got a top 16, top 17 quarterback. You know, Falcons fans made it seem like the recipe for success this season was so simple. They made it seem like all they had to do was run the football with B. John Robinson and Tyler Argier, and Desmond Ritter wasn't going to be asked to do too much. Well... He's been asked to do a good amount, and he has failed to deliver on multiple occasions. I mean, against the Jaguars, two interceptions, completed 61% of his passes. The Texans, what's his best game? The, this dude just isn't it as a starting quarterback right now in the NFL. Maybe he needed a little bit more time to sit behind a veteran and learn, but I think the Falcons are making a big mistake 
Every single week they trot Desmond Ritter out underneath center. They need to start Taylor Heineke. Because if Arthur Smith wants to be the head coach of this football team for the foreseeable future, he needs to make a change at quarterback. Three interceptions when you're supposed to be a ball control offense, a run first offense, is not what you want to see out of your quarterback, especially when your defense is playing at a really high level. New Orleans Saints fans going into this season made it seem like Derek Carr was going to be the second coming of Drew Brees. Like they made it seem like Derek Carr was going to elevate this offense. Many New Orleans fans felt like this man was the missing piece to this offense being able to perform at a high level. You got Michael Thomas, Chris Olave, Rashid Shaheed. There's so much talent on this offense and yet it's still mid. And you can blame Pete Carmichael all you want to, but you also got to put the blame on Derek Carr. Derek Carr has looked like the same quarterback for New Orleans that we've seen over a decade and some change for the Las Vegas Raiders. There's a reason why they gave this dude the pink slip and why they kicked him to the curb, man, because he just isn't great. And Saints fans were telling everybody, man, Derek Carr is going to have ball off for us because he's never had a great defense. Which is true, he's never had a team this talented as the one he has. And that is true also, but Derek Carr isn't good enough to overcome average or below average coaching, which the New Orleans Saints currently have. Nobody likes P. Carr, Michael. It looks like he was only good calling plays when Sean Payton was around. And Dennis Allen is a below average head coach. And Derek Carr just so happens to be a mid quarterback. You're getting what you expected. Mid-quarterback play. Anybody who thought that Derek Carr was going to come to New Orleans and ball out, I feel like your expectations were way too high. Him having a defense only hides the fact that he's a mid-quarterback. When the game is on the line and you need Derek Carr to put you in positions to win, all he's going to do is throw checkdowns, man. Last week, I watched this fool against the Houston Texans throw a checkdown to Alvin Kamara instead of throwing the ball past the sticks and keeping the drive alive, man. Like, what? I can't believe Saints fans gassed this dude up so much before this season started. Derek Carr isn't better than what he was when he was playing for the Las Vegas Raiders. He's the same quarterback, mid. He had a couple of good performances here and there, but for the most part, you're not going to get transcendent quarterback play out of a guy like Derek Carr. His best game was against the New England Patriots, and we know that the Patriots are one of the worst teams in the NFL. Against the Texans, he was mid. Against the Buccaneers, he was awful. Against the Packers, he was mid. Against the Panthers, for crying out loud, on Monday Night Football, he was mid. Derek Carr is the definition of what a mid quarterback in the NFL is. Yeah, you can win if you have a great team around them. The Saints have a solid team around them, not a great team around them. But even despite the fact that he's throwing to a really talented group of wide receivers, he still looks mid. Derek Carr was brought in to make this offense better. He was supposed to take an average offense and make it above average, potentially borderline elite offense. And has that happened? Hell no, because this is still an offense that struggles to crack 20 points. And you're paying this man so much money to do the same shit that he did all these years with the Raiders. Derek Carr 
I'm not saying that he's a bad quarterback because there definitely are a lot worse of quarterbacks out there than Derek Carr, like Daniel Jones, for example. I'll take Derek Carr over Daniel Jones in a heartbeat. But New Orleans, they need better at quarterback. Derek Carr is holding this team back. And same thing with Dennis Allen and Pete Carmichael. It's no wonder the New Orleans Saints find themselves in the situation that they're currently in. You probably feel like New Orleans should be a lot better. People thought this team had the potential to be a dark horse Super Bowl contender this year. Do you see anything that shows you that New Orleans could shock anybody this year? Because all I see is a mid-team that once again is going to fail to have an above 500 record. They need to be calling Sean Payton's phone and trying to trade for him back down to the NOLA because that was the only time the New Orleans Saints actually looked like a functional franchise and they actually looked like a legit team. Derek Carr is not good enough to overcome this functional coaching and he isn't the kind of quarterback that you can rely on to carry your team on his back. He just isn't that good. And Saints fans, before this season, made it seem like Derek Carr was such a significant upgrade from my guy, Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston, you could start him and he could be doing the same shit that Derek Carr is doing right now. At least Jameis Winston has the balls to take some shots downfield. If you're in a third and long situation or you have the game on the line and you need Jameis Winston to put you in scoring range, hell, he may throw a couple of interceptions, but one thing about Jameis Winston is that he ain't going to be throwing no damn three-yard checkdowns to Alvin Kamara when you need a first down to keep the drive alive. Derek Carr is a really big disappointment, and I can't wait for the New Orleans Saints to play the Jacksonville Jaguars on Thursday night football on national television so everybody in this whole entire country can see just how mid Derek Carr is. I can't believe New Orleans Saints fans really got mad and attacked me because I said that Derek Carr wasn't going to elevate this team. Tell me, have I been wrong up to this point about this team? Have I been wrong? The defense has been great. The offense is still mid. I don't know what Saints fans were expecting. Like, you thought that bringing in Derek Carr was really going to be the key to your problems on offense? Bro, people should be laughing at you. You should be laughing at yourself if you thought that. There was no way Derek Carr, somebody who got kicked to the curb and replaced for Jimmy freaking Garoppolo, was going to come in and just all of a sudden give you all-world quarterback play. And you probably weren't expecting all-world quarterback play. You probably thought that... Derek Carr playing at an above average level was good enough to win you the NFC South. You know what's really surprising? The fact that Derek Carr is getting paid times four more money this year than what Baker Mayfield is getting. Isn't that crazy? You talk about a plot twist. Baker Mayfield has played better than Derek Carr this season. Like, what? Who saw that coming? Who would have thought? That Derek Carr will be getting outplayed by Baker Mayfield, who currently is on his fourth team in what, like three years? The Saints offense with Derek Carr is mid and it's average. And I feel bad for you Saints fans because you were sold a dream. That's what this was. You were sold a dream. You thought that Derek Carr was going to come in and give you top 12 quarterback play and he hasn't. And there's no excuses for it. You can't say injuries. You can blame the offensive line all you want to, but you weren't saying how your offensive line was bad before the season. 
He has a talented group of wide receivers to throw the football to. This is the one of the best receiving cores in all of the National Football League. He's throwing to Michael Thomas, who finally, for the first time in years, can stay healthy. Rashid Shaheed is one of the best up-and-coming second-year wide receivers that we have in the game right now. Chris Olave as well. There's no reason for Derek Carr to be playing at this level. Derek Carr doesn't look like a franchise quarterback right now. He looks like a quarterback who you should look to replace whenever a better replacement becomes available. If the Saints have the opportunity to draft a quarterback in next year's draft, they need to do so because I don't think Derek Carr has too much left in the tank. It's funny that I can still remember when Derek Carr was an MVP candidate the year he had that severe back injury. It was crazy. That was like several years ago. I was in what? Ninth grade when that happened? I'm about to graduate college and Derek Carr hasn't played at that same MVP level since. I don't get why people continue to make excuses for Derek Carr. Like, I can't believe there are really Derek Carr apologists out there, man. If you're part of the Derek Carr fan club, just give up your membership, man. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your effort continuing to defend this man. We know what Derek Carr is. He's an average, at times above average quarterback when he has a good team and great coaching around him. There's a reason why guys like Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, and Patrick Mahomes get paid so much money, why they are regarded as some of the best in the games, because they can overcome certain limitations. Every quarterback needs to have some talent around him to be successful. Nobody's denying that, but Joe Burrow took the Bengals to the Super Bowl behind one of the worst offensive lines to ever make it to the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes has been able to overcome not having a great group of wide receivers. When you get drafted in the first round and you get paid a lot of money and you are considered to be an elite quarterback, you're supposed to be able to carry your team. You're supposed to be able to will your team on your shoulders like Lamar Jackson. The Ravens have been banged up. And plus, his wide receivers are dropping passes left and right. But yet, the Ravens are 4-2. and two. Lamar Jackson is the reason why John Harbaugh still has a job. Is Derek Carr the kind of quarterback who can save somebody's job? Because it doesn't look like he's doing a good job of saving Dennis Allen. Because it looks like Dennis Allen, at the end of this season, is going to be getting the pink slip. And he's going to have to revert back to being a defensive coordinator with another team. The Saints offense is still average with Derek Carr at the helm. You Saints fans thought that he was going to be able to get you to the next level, and this offense still is what it was last season. You can blame whoever you want. Just make sure that Derek Carr is part of the blame. Now, Derek Carr may not be the problem, but I don't think he's the solution either. If the New Orleans Saints have an opportunity to draft a quarterback in the 2024 NFL draft, they need to do so because I think that Derek Carr's time is starting to come to an end as far as him being good enough to be a starting quarterback in the league. I can't believe he got outplayed by a rookie quarterback in C.J. Stroud. And I love me some C.J. Stroud, but if you would have told me that C.J. Stroud was going to look like the better quarterback than Derek Carr, I would have thought you was tripping. Like, Derek Carr has been a massive disappointment with the New Orleans Saints. This offense is the same that it was last year when he had Andy Dalton and Jameis Winston at the helm. He hasn't looked like he's better than any of those guys. Yeah, he may not throw as many interceptions as Jameis Winston and Andy Dalton, but 
He's super conservative. Doesn't take a lot of shots downfield. And in big moments of the game, he'd rather throw a check down pass than try to actually try to get the first down and keep the drive alive. Before we move on, if you haven't already, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. We go live Monday through Thursday around 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from. The JT Sports Podcast is available. Also, I almost forgot this. Give us a follow on Instagram and X if you haven't already. You can find us on Instagram at JT Sports underscore and on X at JT Sports underscore underscore. Make sure to go ahead and give us a follow. We've been really active on social media over the last couple of weeks. Kind of like bonus content. I kind of like to troll on there, talk a little bit of shit here and there. But for the most part, if you're just looking for a quick laugh, go ahead and give us a follow on Instagram and on X at JT Sports underscore and at JT Sports underscore underscore. The Lions are going on the road to take on the Baltimore Ravens, man. And America is loving the Detroit Lions right now. There are a lot of people who have the Lions. Currently rated as the number one team in the NFL with the Eagles and the 49ers suffering their first losses of the year. And the Detroit Lions have been playing some of their best football. They dismantled the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Let's not forget how they upset Kansas City week one. And they're going on the road to face a really solid Ravens team. And what really surprises me is that the Baltimore Ravens are a three-point favorite in this game. Now... I don't think that the Ravens are a better team than Detroit right now. The Ravens have been dealing with a lot of injuries on both sides of the football. Their defensive line or their front seven has been completely dismantled with injuries. Their secondary has dealt with injuries as well. But the reason why the Ravens are 4-2 right now is because Lamarvelous has been balling out this year. Lamar Jackson... This is the most efficient I've ever seen him throwing the football throughout his whole entire career. And Lamar Jackson, at least in my opinion, has always been a pretty solid thrower of the football. But this year, he looks really good in the short intermediate passing game. He also has been really good with his deep ball. It's just that his receivers and what we assumed to be the best receiving core that the Ravens have ever had coming into this season have let him down a lot of times like against the Pittsburgh Steelers the Ravens should have won that game and this is coming from a Steelers fan but you had Nelson Aguilar dropping wide open passes you had Rashad Bateman dropping a wide open touchdown in the end zone like these receivers have been a massive disappointment for the Ravens outside of Zay Flowers outside of Joystick there hasn't really been a consistent wide receiver in this Ravens offense for Lamar Jackson to throw to. OBJ? I mean, the dude only plays like 15 snaps a game because most of the times when he is on the field, he gets injured. Like nearly every single Ravens game that I've watched this year, I've seen OBJ leave at some point to go to the damn locker room, man. The Baltimore Ravens offensively are glued together by Lamar Jackson. If it wasn't for Lamar Jackson, this team probably wouldn't be above 500 right now. For the Detroit Lions, 
You got to try to find a way to stop Lamar Jackson. And that's easier said than done because Lamar Jackson, if you watch him this year, he's been a freaking headache. Anytime you get the Ravens in a third down situation, Lamar Jackson is picking the thing up by himself. He says, F it. Since my receivers can't get open or since they don't know how to catch, I'm just going to go ahead and do it all by myself. Now, one thing about Baltimore that I think is the reason why Vegas has them favored in this game, despite the fact that I don't think they've played, you know, really good football. They haven't really executed at a high level is because they got one of the best defenses in all of the whole entire NFL. Defensive coordinator Mike McDonald is in his second season with this franchise, and this defense has been even better this season than what it was last year, and that's them dealing with multiple injuries on the front seven. Detroit... They got one of the best offenses in the whole entire National Football League this year. And if the Ravens are going to be able to win this game, you got to be able to slow down Jared Goff in this passing attack. This offensive line is top three in the league. Some may say that this is the best offensive line in the league. They don't give up a lot of pressures. They don't give up a lot of sacks. And Jared Goff has been having a masterclass performance behind that offensive line. And you probably could say that Jared Goff, has played at an MVP level this year. If I was giving you guys a list of MVP candidates right now, Jared Goff would be in my top five. Jamison Williams, we finally saw his name called last week against Tampa Bay. He could have a big impact in this game given the injuries that the Ravens have had in that secondary, especially on the back end. For Jared Goff, this is a big opportunity for him to prove to everybody why he deserves legitimate MVP recognition. Lamar Jackson, he's played at a really solid level, but I don't really think a lot of people have been giving Lamar Jackson his props. And same thing with Jared Goff. I think people just view Jared Goff as this game manager quarterback, and he's not capable of being able to ascend to a top 10 level. Well, if you watch Jared Goff this season, he's been nothing short of a top 10 quarterback. The Detroit Lions, everything that they need Jared Goff to do, he does, and then some. He's been a great leader. He's also been really clutch in big moments, like against the Kansas City Chiefs. He's made some big-time throws on multiple occasions. Ever since the second half of last season, Jared Goff, something has just clicked for him. He doesn't turn the football over that much. He makes really good decisions with the ball. He's really good when it comes to reading and going through all of his reads and progressions. Like, Jared Goff, has kind of had like a little bit of a career resurgence. And it's crazy because when he got traded to the Detroit Lions in exchange for Matthew Stafford, people thought that he was nothing more than a bridge quarterback. It's funny how the tables have turned. The Ravens aren't good at running the football. Outside of Lamar Jackson, their rushing attack has not been consistent. And if the Lions can hold Lamar Jackson to under 50 yards rushing, I think that would be a win for them. You got Aiden Hutchinson, James Houston. Your defensive line is good enough to get the job done. Your secondary has improved, even though I don't know how improved the secondary is. I just know that this is a way better secondary than what we saw last year where the Detroit Lions were giving up big play after big play. And with how these wide receivers have Failed to really be consistent for Lamar Jackson. You definitely like how the Detroit Lions defense matches up against the Baltimore Ravens. And I think up to this point, the Detroit Lions just look like a way better team than the Ravens. Even with Lamar Jackson, I think the Lions should be able to win this game. 
And I just think that for the odds makers out there, I'm just a little bit shocked that the Ravens are favored in this game. I would have thought that the Ravens were going to be underdogs in this game. I know that they are playing Detroit at home, but the Lions have just looked like a way better coach team than what the Ravens have. They execute way better. They don't have a lot of drops by their receivers. Like this is a really good football team. And this, in my opinion, looks like the best team in the NFL right now, at least at this moment. So I like the Detroit Lions to win this game, even though they're going to be without David Montgomery, Jameer Gibbs, he's going to be back healthy. Hopefully they can find a way to get him going. But this probably could be a defensive slugfest for the first couple of quarters until the Detroit Lions are able to pull away. And I just think that for the Ravens to win this game, you need more receivers than Zay Flowers to step up. Like these receivers have constantly let Lamar Jackson down week after week after weekend. You're going to be able to win games with drops and not having great receiver play when you're playing against teams like the Tennessee Titans. But when you're going up against a world-oiled machine like how the Detroit Lions are right now, you can't afford costly drops. You can't afford to leave points on the field. The Ravens easily could be 5-1 and one right now. This is coming from a Steelers fan. Like, I thought they were going to win that game. They started out with a 10-0 league. I thought that they were going to cruise to the victory. But instead, these receivers wanted to drop passes. OBJ is scamming the Baltimore Ravens out of what 18 19 million dollars on a one-year deal the Ravens I don't think that they're going to get blown out in this game and I definitely think that they got a chance to win this game but until this team can show that they can execute at a way higher level than what they have done up to this point I'm going to take the Lions to win this is the biggest game of week seven in the NFL we got the Miami Dolphins taking on the Philadelphia Eagles now a lot of people that I've talked to have picked Miami to win this game. They feel like Miami has arrived. They feel like this team is most likely going to win the AFC this year. And for the people who are high on the Miami Dolphins, right, I want to give you a reason to kind of pause on your lofty expectations for this team. Because anytime the Dolphins are in the primetime matchup, they fail to win a lot of them. The last time I saw this team in prime time, they got embarrassed by the Buffalo Bills. They got humbled by the Buffalo Bills. And then when they played against the New England Patriots, yeah, they won that game, but it wasn't convincing. It was a pretty tightly contested contest, and the New England Patriots are not a good team. So anytime the Miami Dolphins get put in these big primetime matchups, they fall short of being able to come away with the victory more times than not. Like, do you remember when they lost to the 49ers and they lost to the Char? Well, yeah, they lost to the Chargers. They got boxed by Brandon Staley. The Dolphins just aren't a great team when the lights are the brightest. Now, you're hoping that in this matchup, you're going to be able to change the narrative. And you most definitely can't do that because the Philadelphia Eagles are coming off the worst performance that we've seen out of them all this season. And many people feel like the Philadelphia Eagles aren't the team that they were last year. They've went through some changes on the coaching staff. They got a new OC in D.C. Jonathan Gannon and Shane Steichen are now head coaches. And the Philadelphia Eagles, it looks like they kind of are struggling to find who they are as a football team. And then you got Jalen Hurts, who was hurting everybody last week with the three picks that he threw against the New York Jets. Like the Eagles, this is a big game for them. Because if you lose this game 
if you're Nick Sirianni, you kind of got to go in the mirror and ask yourself, like, who are we as a team? And for the Dolphins, you look at how this offense has performed. This offense is at a historical pace to break a lot of records. They currently right now are averaging 37 points per game, number one in the league. They're number one in yards per game, number one in yards per play. Like this offense just is unstoppable at times. And I'm pretty sure that Mike McDaniel, Tua Tagovailoa, Jalen Waddle, and Tyreek Hill are licking their chops going into this game because you're going up against a wounded secondary. The Philadelphia Eagles, they've been in a couple of trade rumors for either a safety or another cornerback because they've dealt with a lot of injuries. Like Darius Slay is on the injury report. You got Reed Blankenship on the injury report as well you also have guys like Jalen Carter who are banged up we don't know if he's going to be able to suit up in this game so this Philadelphia Eagles defense has dealt with tons of injuries up to this point of this season and plus this defense although it's not bad they aren't playing at the level that they were last season last season this was one of the best defenses if not the best defense in the NFL they were able to get constant pressure on the quarterback like the Eagles that we saw last year are not the Eagles that we've been seeing this year and that's okay because every team isn't the same version of themselves that they were in the previous season football is a week-to-week year-round or year-to-year sport you're not going to have one team playing at the same level every single year sometimes teams are going to drop off a little bit but Jalen Hurts he kind of has regressed a little bit and right now, if we were to rank quarterbacks, I think you probably could put Tua over Jalen Hurts right now. Tua, say what you want to say about him not being the most physically gifted quarterback, not having the strongest arm, not being the most athletic, but he is really good in this Mike McDaniel system. And I agree with Mike McDaniel. Like, who gives a F about who's a system quarterback and who isn't a system quarterback? Like, as long as Tua Tagovailoa is playing at a high level and he's winning games, why the F doesn't matter? I agree with Mike McDaniel when he said that, man. Tua Tagovailoa, give this fool his props. He's staying healthy. He's playing at a great level. It doesn't matter if he's throwing the Tyree Killer Jalen Waddle. He's executing. There are plenty of quarterbacks that have talent around them and they fail to execute consistently. And going up against a wounded secondary of Philadelphia, there's a pretty good chance that Tua should be able to have a pretty big performance. Now, Vic Vangio, he is the godfather of the Fangio 6 defense, which has been influenced or has influenced half the NFL. The majority of defensive coordinators in the league right now are running some sort of Vic Vangio's defense. His defense hasn't really been all that great in big-time matchups this year. Like, against the Buffalo Bills, they went up and down the field on Vic Vangio's defense. And you wonder if Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia are going to be able to do the same. Jalen Ramsey, he's going to be expected back to return, but not for this game. And... When you look at Miami secondary, you know, I don't know how they're going to fare against one of the best receiving cores in the NFL with Buff Batman and Devonta Smith, and they just signed Julio Jones. Now, I don't know if we're going to see Julio in this game. I would love to see Julio Jones in this game, but maybe we don't see Julio Jones. Maybe we do, but regardless, Miami secondary 
hasn't looked good this year. And I think that this is a good spot for the Philadelphia Eagles and Jalen Hurts to get back on track when it comes to their passing attack. Now, the run defense for Miami has been pretty solid. You got Christian Wilkins, who is probably the most underrated defensive tackle in the league. He's really styled against the run. And you got my guy, DeAndre Swift, who's been going crazy for me on my fantasy team. So you guys know who I'm rooting for in this game. I'm going to be rooting for DeAndre Swift. I hope he has a big game. And I can't believe that he wasn't even a starting running back for the Philadelphia Eagles going into this season. Like, I forgot who the hell they had starting over DeAndre Swift, man. Like, DeAndre Swift. Is top three, top five in the NFL in rushing yards per game. He's really good after the catch. He has really good hands coming out of the backfield. And I feel like he could be a big difference maker in this game for the Philadelphia Eagles if Jalen Hurts continues to struggle. The Miami Dolphins, this defense needs to play at a really high level because I do think that Jalen Hurts is still a top three, top five quarterback in this game right now. And despite the fact that he had an off performance last week, I definitely feel with how the Dolphins defense has played at times against great quarterbacks, they could struggle in this game. Josh Allen was shredding this Vic Vangio defense apart a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why I keep bringing up that Buffalo Bills game is because it kind of reinforces the point that I just told you guys earlier when we first started this segment. The fact that the Dolphins don't play their best football in prime time concerns me in this game. Now, you may look at the Dolphins and you may say that they got a better team from a talent standpoint than what the Philadelphia Eagles have. That's debatable, but regardless of the point, they don't tend to play up to the level of talent that they have anytime they're facing a remotely elite team. The Buffalo Bills are considered to be an elite team going into that game all week. Like, Dolphins fans and many people in the media were praising the Dolphins, and they got humbled. And once again, people are praising the Miami Dolphins again. And are they going to be able to come away with the win? Or are they going to get humbled again? And are they going to remind us why they may not be the Super Bowl contenders that people in the media feel that they are? Like, yeah, they got the fastest offense in the league. But it's not like this offense is unstoppable. I mean, Sean McDermott and the Bills offense shut down this offense, held them to their lowest point total of the whole entire season, damn near. Same thing with the New England Patriots. So if the Patriots and the Bills can slow down this offense, you mean to tell me that the Philadelphia Eagles defense can't do the same? I mean, yeah, they are down multiple guys due to injuries, but there's still a lot of talent. You still got Hassan Reddick. I mean, nobody wants to see Jalen Carter when he's fully healthy. You got Fletcher Cox still. I mean, there still is plenty of talent on this Philadelphia Eagles defense despite the injuries that they suffered. I'm taking Philadelphia to win this game. At first, I went with the Dolphins. I really did. But the more I think about how this team performs and the bright limelights, the more I say, you know, the Dolphins still got to prove it to me. The Dolphins got to prove to me that they're capable of knocking off a elite team, something that they have failed to do under Mike McDaniel this year. Anytime the Dolphins get put in a proven situation on Sunday night football or in the primetime game against a great team, they underperform. And maybe they play better in this game, but I think that Philadelphia ends up bouncing back. Like something about the Dolphins just kind of deters me from really getting on the Miami Dolphins hype train fully. Like, I'm not saying this team isn't good enough to win the Super Bowl, but 
this team right now, to me, I'm not about to hop on the Miami Dolphins Super Bowl bandwagon until they can show me that they have what it takes to be the elite team. They struggled against the Buffalo Bills. They got blown out, and they barely beat the New England Patriots. So this is a team that kind of just has a primetime game problem, and I don't know how they're going to end up fixing it. Maybe they fix it in this game and they prove me wrong. We will see, but give me the Philadelphia Eagles with the win. 27 to 20 is my final score prediction for this game. Brock Bowers is injured. He's going to be out for the next four to six weeks, and I think with him getting injured, the SEC is fair game for anybody because Georgia, without Brock Bowers, they're not the same football team. And if you look at that Auburn game, if it wasn't for Brock Bowers and what he did in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter, Auburn would have walked away with the upset win. Now, Georgia has a good amount of talent to be able to make up for Brock Bowers getting injured and missing a significant amount of time. But the thing is, even though you do have guys like Lab McConkey and Dominic Lovett, are they going to be good enough to overcompensate for not having Brock Bowers there? Because there's a difference between having solid wide receivers and having an elite game-changing tight end. Brock Bowers is regarded as the greatest tight end to ever play college football in a lot of people's opinions. And you definitely can see why. Like, he's one of the best players in college football. I had him fifth on my Heisman Trophy power rankings. And without having him, Georgia's offense is going to be at a significant disadvantage. And this isn't the same Georgia team that we've seen in the previous two seasons when they won back-to-back national championships. Like, I know Georgia has a bunch of talented five- and four-star guys at wide receiver on their roster, but... With the way they've played up to this point this season, I don't think that it's just going to be next man up and they're just going to have guys coming out of nowhere that we never heard of that are going to end up going off. Georgia, compared to the rest of the SEC East, yeah, they look like the better team, but based on how they have performed at times, the gap doesn't look that wide without Brock Bowers being there. And they currently are on their bye week. You know who they play following their bye? They got to play Florida in the Florida-Georgia game down there in Jacksonville. In Florida, they're in second place in the SEC East at 3-1. and one. Not having Brock Bowers, I think that Florida does have a pretty good shot at winning that game. And I know that it's a team sport. One player doesn't make or break the team. But anytime you have one of the best players in college football missing time with injury, you're going to feel that loss. I don't think that... Brock Bowers getting injured is just something that Georgia's easily going to be able to replace and say, oh, no worries, we got it. Like Florida, even though Graham Mertz wasn't really a quarterback that many people were high on coming into this season, like it's starting to look like he's starting to hit his stride. And this isn't the same Georgia defense that we've seen in their back-to-back championship wins. This is a Georgia team that kind of was getting carved up by Vanderbilt, and they don't really play their best football unless they're going up against top-notch competition like what they were against Kentucky. This is a team that tends to play down the competition at times and play up the competition anytime they're in big games. But Florida, they're one of those teams that you don't want to face because they're your rival. And these rivalry games have the tendency to be really close. And that Auburn game, most of us thought that that was going to be a massacre. We weren't expecting that game to be close. So if Georgia is struggling to beat Auburn, what makes you think that they're not potentially going to be able to struggle to beat Florida without one of the best players in all of college football? 
And not just that you got to play Florida after your bye week, but you also got to play Missouri, Tennessee, and you probably aren't going to have Brock Bowers for any of those matchups. Missouri, they've been really potent offensively. Brady Cook's been playing some damn good football. Luther Burden has damn near been unstoppable. Tennessee, their offense hasn't been what it is or what it was last year, but their defense has looked really good. So the last couple of games on Georgia's schedule are really tough. Like, you got to play Ole Miss. And yeah, you are going to have the luxury of being able to play Missouri and Ole Miss at home. But just because you're going to have the home field advantage doesn't necessarily guarantee you the win. I think that this is the most vulnerable that we've seen Georgia in a very long time. Because for the first time, there are some significant concerns about this team. We know that they have plenty of five and four star talent, but just because you have five and four star guys on the roster doesn't mean that those guys are immediately going to step in and they're going to play at a high level. This injury to Brock Bowers definitely makes this SEC race or this SEC East race wide open. Like, I really feel like we potentially could see Georgia lose one of their next couple of games that they have to close out this season. I'm not saying that it's going to happen against Florida. But it most definitely could happen against a team like Mizzou or Ole Miss that's more than capable of being able to put up a lot of points on you. And Kentucky, yeah, that was a really solid win by Georgia. Kentucky offensively hasn't been great this year. Missouri and Ole Miss have. So for Georgia, not having Brock Bowers really changes the SEC East race. And I really think that this thing is wide open now. I'm not saying that Georgia isn't going to win this division. All I'm saying is that I don't think you can count out Florida, Missouri, or Tennessee for having a shot at being able to win this division, given the fact that Georgia was heavily dependent on Brock Bowers. You take him out of the equation against Auburn, and you're walking into the Florida-Georgia game 6-1 and instead of 7-0. and Anytime you're losing a player of this magnitude, one of the greatest to ever play, of course, you're going to feel that loss. And I know Georgia fans are going to say, man, we got this dude. We got that guy. You don't got another Brock Bowers. Guys like Brock Bowers don't grow on trees. He's one of the best players in college football for a reason. You're not just going to lose this guy and move on. Like, it's not going to be a loss that you're not going to feel like you're going to feel it. So let me know how you guys feel about Brock Bowers' injury and how you feel about Georgia's chances of being able to still remain the top dog in the SEC East this year. Jimbo Fisher, man, you talk about coaches on the hot seat, it doesn't get no hotter than the seat that Jimbo Fisher is sitting in. Like, his seat is so damn hot, he needs a ceiling fan, the heat, to warm that thing up or cool that thing off before he sits his hand pots down, man. Like, he's been a massive failure at Texas A&M. You know, for the past three off-seasons, Everybody always likes to label Texas A&M as a dark horse playoff contender. And for a very good reason, because they recruit at a really high level. They have the fourth most talented team in all of college football, according to 247 Sports Team Talent Composite Rankings. And yet, this team has yet to make it to a college football playoff appearance, and yet to make it to the SEC championship game. Jimbo Fisher's tenure at Texas A&M has been a massive flop. His first season in 2018, they went 9-4. and four. They went 8-5 and five in 2019. And then in 2020, Kellen Mond's final season, 
They went to a New Year's Six Bowl game and they damn near snuck into the college football playoffs. And from that point forward, people were starting to think that Texas A&M was about to ascend into that elite level territory with the programs such as Georgia and Alabama. And that's yet to happen. And ever since that 2020 season, this program has just went backwards. 2021, you went eight and four. Not really going to give Jimbo Fisher too much heat for that 2021 season because they did deal with a ton of injuries. But you dealt with injuries in 2022 and you also with that quarterback. And coming into 2023, many people felt that Texas A&M, although they may not be able to win the SEC West, they thought that this would at least be a team that's capable of being able to win eight or nine games. Now it looks like Texas A&M at best is going to be a seven-win football team. I don't think the offense has been awful. I think Bobby Petrino has been a really good pickup by Jimbo Fisher. But it's like when you solve one issue, you have another issue. The offense plays some solid games, but yet the defense all of a sudden starts to fall apart. Against the Miami Hurricanes, I never thought that my Hurricanes would be able to beat Texas A&M, but they did. Texas A&M's most impressive win this year was against Arkansas. There's no reason why A&M should have lost to Alabama. This is the weakest Bama team that we've ever seen under Nick Saban since his first season in Tuscaloosa when they lost to Louisiana Monroe. And then they lost to Tennessee. Tennessee, they don't look like the same team this season that they were last year. And Jimbo Fisher, man, I used to make so many excuses for this, man. I used to be... Uh, Jimbo Fisher defender to the day I died. Well, not anymore, bro. Like, the cat's out of the bag. He's not a good coach anymore. It just seems like the game has started to pass Jimbo Fisher by, and he can't even beat a big-time opponent. You should have beaten Alabama. You had every opportunity to beat Alabama this year. They had struggling offensive line play. Jalen Milrow is fairly inconsistent as a passer. I mean... The stars were perfectly aligned for Texas A&M to have a storybook season, and yet they're having another disappointing season. They may not be 5-7 and seven bad like what they were last year, but this season is already a giant letdown considering what this team could potentially have been if they were playing up to their full potential. Texas A&M playing at their full potential is good enough to win the damn national championship. And that may sound crazy to hear, but it's true. They got the fourth most talented roster in all of college football. They've brought in several top three, top five recruiting classes. So the talent is there for this team to win the championship. You can't tell me, oh, Texas A&M winning a national championship. You tripping. No, you tripping. Because the talent is there. It's just that the coaching and the execution has not been there. Now, I'm not going to go as far to say that Jimbo Fisher is Kevin Sumlin bad because once Johnny Manziel left, Kevin Sumlin was not a great coach. Jimbo Fisher, he has went from a lead coach to a barely above average head coach. It just seems like the game is starting to pass Jimbo Fisher by. And the only notable moments that I really recall from Jimbo Fisher over the last couple of years was when he went at Nick Saban for accusing them of buying players, which he wasn't lying. I mean, they were buying players technically, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's legal now. But it's like he got all riled up about it, and, you know, it didn't really translate to anything on the field. 
And even before that, like his biggest win was when they upset Alabama with Zach Kazada at quarterback. Outside of that, there hasn't really been too many memorable moments when it comes to Jimbo Fisher being a head coach at Texas A&M outside of that one great season that they had in 2020. They still have yet to have a double-digit winning season with him at the helm at head coach. Jimbo Fisher, man, I think after this season, they should just part ways with them. And before you say, oh, the buyout's so big, dude, this is Texas A&M. They're in the state of Texas. Money grows on trees in Texas, kind of. It's like, do you not know how deep of pockets these Texas football programs have? Like SMU, SMU, their whole alumni base gathered together to help get them to the ACC. You look at Texas, they got a lot of money there. TCU, they got deep pockets. So I'm pretty sure Texas A&M, yeah, they may not want to pay a guy and keep having to pay a massive buyout for somebody who you kind of expect it to be able to get you to the next level. But at the end of the day, man, if somebody's not getting the job done and they're not living up to expectations, you got to move on. It doesn't matter how much you're paying the dude if the dude isn't going to be able to get it done. You could easily find another. Well, I'm not going to say easily, but you could move on from Jimbo Fisher and find a replacement that's good enough to have you in the championship conversation in his first season, whoever it is. Hell, I think they should go after Urban Meyer. Why not? Yeah, I know Urban Meyer is kind of viewed as a scumbag to a lot of people, and many people are a little bit turned off from what happened when he was the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. But as far as what he has done, as far as him being a college football coach, I mean, he's one of the best ever. I'm not saying he's the greatest, but he is one of the best head coaches that this game has seen in the last decade. He definitely is one of the five, ten best coaches to coach college football within the last two decades. And I think you put him in Texas A&M with all the resources they have. I think Texas A&M would immediately be a contender in the SEC West if they hire Urban Meyer. And with the way that the SEC West is going with all these big-name head coaches that you have, Brian Kelly, Nick Saban, Lane Kiffin, you got Hugh Freeze. You're going to need a big name if you want to be able to get to the top of this conference. Jimbo Fisher used to be a big name, but not anymore. He went from a big fish in a small pond when he was dominating at Florida State to looking like a small fish in a big pond in the SEC. Like Jimbo Fisher's seat is so hot, he has to blow on it. You ever ate your food too fast when it was too hot and you didn't give it enough time to cool down and you had to, you had to spit it out, you had to blow on it for like three minutes? I mean, Jimbo Fisher, he can't even sit down on his seat without him having to have a fan on to cool it down. That's how hot his seat is. People keep telling me, oh, they can't fire Jimbo Fisher because the buyout's too big. Man, fuck the buyout, man. This is Texas A&M. They got more than enough money to fire Jimbo Fisher and hire a suitable replacement. Like I said earlier, yeah, you don't want to fire a guy and have to pay him 70-something million for him to not be doing anything, to not be coaching your football team. But if he's holding your program back, you can't be scared to make a move because of the money. Texas A&M has more than enough money to be able to afford Jimbo Fisher's buyout at this point. You can't continue to allow this fool to continue to underachieve. Like, Texas A&M legitimately is a program that should be competing for national championships. They got great facilities. They got tons of resources. They got tons of money. 
the offer great NIL deals, the guys in the transfer portal and players coming out of high school. The only thing holding this team back is Jimbo Fisher. We don't seen enough out of Jimbo Fisher to know what he is as a head coach. He hired Bobby Petrino to fix the offense. The offense has looked better, but it's like now the defense is kind of underperforming. Like against Tennessee. I mean, yeah, you were expecting Connor Wigman to stay healthy for the whole entire season, but Max Johnson is a pretty capable starter, and he crapped a bit against Tennessee. And his offense crapped a bit against Alabama. They had several opportunities to beat Alabama, and they were unable to capitalize. I don't think the problem with Texas A&M is talent. At this point, there's not really a big gap between Georgia, Alabama, and Texas A&M. Texas A&M has the fourth most talented team in college football. Look it up. 247 Sports Team Tyler Composite ranking. They rank fourth. There's no reason for Texas A&M to not be in the playoff conversation. There was a point where every single year, people thought that Texas A&M could be a playoff team. And every single year, they failed to live up to those expectations. Jimbo Fisher, his whole entire tenure at Texas A&M has been a massive disappointment. And this hire by Texas A&M was a big flaw. And you got to remember, when Texas A&M first hired Jimbo Fisher and they gave him that massive contract, that was one of the biggest contracts that I've seen in my lifetime watching college football at that moment. Once Jimbo Fisher got paid all that money by Texas A&M, it seemed like a lot of these other big-time coaches started getting Big paydays as well, such as Luke Fickle and Brian Kelly. It's like now these universities are having no problem spending a hundred million on getting a big time head coach. And there's nothing wrong with spending a lot of big bank on getting an elite head coach. The only issue is that make sure that you're spending that money wisely on a head coach that truly is worth it. Jimbo Fisher has not been worth any of the money that Texas A&M has been paying him since they hired him back in 2018. Like my homie, I asked him, and he doesn't even watch college football like that. I was like, how you feel about Jimbo Fisher? He was like, man, I don't really like him like that. He hasn't really done anything. And my homie doesn't even watch a lot of college football. So for him to say that and him to acknowledge that Jimbo Fisher hasn't done anything, that's concerning. And this is coming from somebody who almost came close to picking Texas A&M to win the SEC West this year. I'm glad I didn't make that mistake, just like how Texas A&M made a big mistake hiring Jimbo Fisher. He's a solid recruiter, but his game day management has went down the drain. His ability to assemble a top-notch staff has also went down the drain as well. And his play calling, that went down the drain several years ago. There was a time where people used to call this dude the quarterback whisperer. He doesn't look like the quarterback whisperer anymore. Jimbo Fisher, you got to get him the hell out of College Station ASAP, fast as possible, expeditiously. I think you should go after Urban Meyer. Why not? Urban Meyer is a proven championship caliber coach, has a great resume. Yeah, I know he didn't work out in the NFL, but there are plenty of great college coaches who failed at the NFL level. Nick Saban being one of them. With all the resources and talent that Texas A&M has, I think you hire Urban Meyer and you'll be a championship contender the next day. Jimbo Fisher has to go, man. His time in Texas A&M has officially ran out. We got Penn State going on the road to take on Ohio State, man. Penn State fans have been waiting all offseason for this game, man. This is the game that Penn State finally has the opportunity to prove that they no longer are the passenger princesses of the Big Ten Conference. For the last couple of years, 
Penn State has taken the backseat to Michigan and Ohio State. Is this finally the year that James Franklin and the Penn State football program break through and finally win the Big Ten and make it to the college football playoffs? That's to be decided. And this game is going to have a big decision in determining if James Franklin really is the guy who can get Penn State football over the top. Because Ohio State is a really good football team. Now, I don't think they are as good as what they have been in previous years. Like, I don't think Kyle McCord is all that great. As a matter of fact, like, I kind of feel like Drew Aller has the quarterback advantage in this game. Drew Aller, yeah, he may not have played at a high level in games that he's played in against solid defenses like Illinois, but he did look pretty damn good against Iowa, and Iowa has one of the best defenses in all of college football. So although Drew Aller has had a couple of stinkers in there he also has had some pretty good performances and I just think that he's just an all-around more talented quarterback than Kyle McCord he's way more athletic he has a really good arm he has the ability to throw the football from multiple different arm angles and I think that Drew Waller is a big reason why so many Penn State fans are so confident about their ability to win the Big Ten this year and why so many Penn State fans feel they got a great chance to upset Ohio State even though they do have to go on the road to do so. Drew Aller was the number one quarterback recruit coming out of his recruiting class for a reason. You know, Jim Harbaugh has J.J. McCarthy, Ryan Day has had C.J. Stroud and Justin Fields, and yet James Franklin has had Trace McSorley and I can't even remember, Sean Clifford as his last two quarterbacks. Now, those guys were really good quarterbacks, but they weren't great quarterbacks. They weren't transcendent level quarterbacks like what J.J. McCarthy is and what C.J. Stroud and Justin Fields were for that Ohio State program. Now for James Franklin, you finally have your hemat quarterback. And Penn State has a pretty good team. Like, they got a really good offensive line. They got a great defense. They got fantastic cornerback play. Ohio State may be the more talented team than Penn State, but I don't think the gap and talent between Penn State and Ohio State is all that wide. As a matter of fact, like, I think the gap is probably this big. I got Ohio State up here and Penn State down here. If Drew Waller can come in and have a really good game, I feel like they should be able to come away with the victory. Kyle McCord, he didn't look great against Notre Dame outside of the final drive of that game, which he put Ohio State in position to ultimately win. When I look at Kyle McCord, I'm not saying he's a bad quarterback, but I definitely think that it's fair to say that Kyle McCord is probably the worst quarterback that Ohio State has had in the last couple of years. He isn't a transcendent level talent like Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud was. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not good enough to give Ohio State the victory in this game, but anytime you have a guy like Drew Aller and he's playing at his peak abilities, it gives you a better chance to win compared to having a quarterback like Kyle McCord who isn't really all that great. He's good. He's not great. Drew Aller should be great. The last couple of number one quarterbacks to come out have all translated very well, and they all are playing in the NFL. If Drew Aller is the quarterback that many of us expect him to be, he should be the difference maker and Penn State having a great chance to pull off this upset. Now, Penn State also has a really talented group of running backs. You got Katron Allen, Nicholas Singleton, although those guys haven't had the 
impressive seasons that I thought that they would have, they still are probably one of the best running back duos in all of college football. And behind that offensive line, you expect them to have a pretty good performance in this game. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, Jim Knowles' defense has been lights out this year against Notre Dame. Notre Dame's offense couldn't really get anything going. This defense is legit, and Drew Aller most definitely could struggle in this game. Key word, he could struggle. You see, I'm not coming into this game <clears throat> expecting Drew Aller to struggle. I expect him to come in and look like the quarterback that we expect him to be. He was a number one quarterback recruit coming out of his recruiting class, and plus, he had a really good performance against Iowa. I know a lot of people are going to reference the Illinois game where he didn't really look all too high. He completed less than 50% of his passes. But outside of that game, he's looked pretty good. I mean, you got to give him a lot of props for how he played against Iowa. You can't just harp on a dude for him struggling against Illinois, and then you're not going to give him props for playing good against one of the best defenses in all of college football. So I think that Kyle McCord, yeah, he may not be bad, but I don't think he's as good as the quarterbacks that OSU has had in the past. I definitely feel like Penn State has the quarterback advantage with Drew Aller in this game. And when you have a great quarterback, in big moments, he should be able to make big plays to keep you alive in this game. You see, with Sean Clifford, yeah, JTT had an incredible historical performance, but Sean Clifford put Penn State in the hole. Now, although Penn State got rolling once he finally woke up and he got hot, but the problem is he got too hot way too late. Penn State needs to come into this game and they need to hit the ground running. They need to come out scoring possessions on their first three offensive drives so they can quiet that Ohio State crowd. Yeah, I know that this is going to be the most hostile environment that Drew Aller has ever played in, and there is the possibility that he could get rattled in this game. But at the end of the day, when you're the number one quarterback prospect coming out of high school, you're supposed to be a quarterback prodigy. You're supposed to be the him at quarterback. You need to be able to come in and be able to have big games on the road. If you can't win on the road against Ohio State, then I don't think you're worthy enough to be considered being able to win the Big Ten. Good teams find ways to win on the road. Ohio State beat Notre Dame on the road. I'm tired of people making it seem like Notre Dame is this overrated team. Notre Dame is playing the toughest schedule in all of college football, and they're a damn good football team. And I'm tired of people making it seem like Ohio State's win over Notre Dame is just something that you should just scoff over just because it's Notre Dame. Like, you got to stop nitpicking certain wins. A win is a win regardless of if it's against Rutgers or if it's against Notre Dame. Like, it kind of blows me how people don't want to give Ohio State a lot of props for beating a damn good Notre Dame team. Because this year's Notre Dame team very well could be the best team, the most talented team that they've had in over the last decade since when they had that Mental Teo layer team. And they got blowed out by Alabama in the BCS National Championship game. Like, I think that... These are two of the better teams in college football, at least two of the top five best teams in the nation right now. I love Manny Diaz as a defensive coordinator. You want to know why? Because he was the former head coach of the Miami Hurricanes, and we did Manny Diaz wrong. The way we got rid of him and replaced him for Mario Cristobal, I don't really like that. I never really agree with it. Now, yeah, Manny Diaz may have had to go. But it doesn't look like we upgraded with Mario Cristobal with obviously the results that we've been getting on the field, losing to Georgia Tech and getting stumped by UNC. But 
regardless of the point, that has nothing to do with this game. Manny Diaz, at times, his defenses do have a tendency to underperform, in particular, the run defense. But I think with how deep Penn State is at linebacker and how good their defensive line is, I don't think that Travion Henderson is going to be running all over this Penn State front. And on top of that, Ohio State's offensive line isn't really all that great. Now, I'm not saying they're bad, but in terms of how this offensive line has played in the previous years, this offensive line hasn't played at the remotely same level that Ohio State has been accustomed to getting out of the offensive line. And I definitely think that that's going to be a big disadvantage for them going against a very super athletic defense. Meanwhile, Penn State arguably has one of the best offensive lines in all of college football. Lufashano, I hope I pronounced his name right, this dude hasn't given up a sack in all his years being the starter at left tackle for Penn State, and I think he's only given up, like, what, two or five quarterback pressures in his whole entire career? So when you got an offensive line this good, it makes things a lot easier for Drew Aller. You see, I get the fact that Drew Aller having to go on the road and play Ohio State in a hostile environment is something that definitely is a big red flag. But you got to look at what Drew Aller has around him. Yeah, the receiving core may not knock anybody's socks off, but I definitely think it's good enough to get the job done. I don't think that Ohio State secondary, regardless of how good guys like Denzel Burke are, are just absolutely going to clamp down the Penn State wide receivers. Like, Penn State has enough talent offensively to be able to beat Ohio State. Ohio State's defense has played lights out, but with Drew Aller at the helm, like I said, if this dude is the quarterback that many Penn State fans expect him to be, this should be his coming out party. This dude was the number one quarterback prospect. I don't know how many times I have to reiterate this. When you're the number one QB coming out of high school, they don't just give you that label for a reason. They don't just give you that ranking for no reason. He's supposed to come in and be a program changer for James Franklin. And that's why I believe so many people have a lot of confidence in Penn State being able to get this win. Let's be honest, bro. Like, we know Penn State has a good team. Nobody's denying that. But Penn State has always had really talented teams. It's not like Penn State has just been a complete team that we just ignore in the Big Ten. They've just been a team that hasn't been good enough to beat Ohio State and Michigan. That's not anything to be, you know, super critical of because they haven't had the quarterbacks that Michigan and Ohio State have had. They had Sean Clifford and Trace McSorley. That's been their two best quarterbacks with James Franklin at the helm at head coach. When you get a guy like Drew Aller in there with this kind of talent, your program should be able to get over the hump. Drew Aller to me, it's the missing puzzle piece for Penn State this year. And I know that a lot of people, well, I'm not going to say a lot of people, but a good amount of people out there who really follow the Big Ten heavy feel like Penn State's year is next year when Michigan loses a good amount of their veteran players and Ohio State loses a good amount of their veteran pieces. But I really feel like Penn State could arrive a lot earlier than what people expect. Penn State, their team is just as good as Ohio State. Like, they're going to have as many players drafted in the league and next year's draft as Ohio State is. And from the foreseeable future, they're going to have a lot of good players going into the draft. I think this season, there's no reason why Penn State 
isn't capable of being able to pull off this upset against OSU. Now, Ohio State, for Ryan Day, there's a good amount of pressure on him to win this game. And if they lose this game, I think Ohio State fans are going to lose their effing minds because they're going to be like, bro, what the hell are we doing losing to Penn State? Regardless of the reasoning, people expect for Ohio State to be able to win this game. Yeah, they may not be a far more superior team talent-wise than Penn State compared to previous years. There's a reason why Ohio State is only a full-point favorite. If this game was being played in Penn State's house, Ohio State probably would be an underdog, probably by two or maybe one point, and it turns into a pick But the fact that the point spread in this game is so close tells us that there's something about this Penn State team that Vegas really likes. And I really feel like Drew Aller is really that missing piece that ties this all together. I really feel if James Franklin is going to be able to finally get Penn State from out of the shadows of Michigan or Ohio State, Drew Aller is going to be the key piece to it. Now, Ohio State, you look at their offense and how they match up against Penn State's defense, I can't wait to see Penn State's secondary against Ohio State's wide receivers. Now, we know Marvin Harrison Jr., he's him. He's the greatest wide receiver prospect in the history of the NFL draft. When he declares for next year's draft, he potentially could go in the top three. Very seldomly do you see a wide receiver get drafted that high. He's a specimen. Great size, incredible athleticism. Like, he's one of the fastest players in college football. What people report, and some people say he can run as fast as 22, 23 miles per hour in game. Now, I don't know how accurate and how true that is, but if it is true or just a little true, then that's just downright scary. And then you got a Mecca, Buka. You also got their tight end, Stover, who's been going crazy. I really like him. Like, not only is he really good in the passing game, but he's a really good run blocker, too. And Trayvon Henderson, I love seeing him play like it definitely looks like he's bounced back to that 2021 form. He's a monster. And Ohio State offensively, you know, they do have enough talent where they should be able to put up a lot of points on that Penn State defense. Because like I said earlier, I love Manny Diaz and he is a really good defensive coordinator, but sometimes his defenses can underperform in big games. But with Kyle McCord at quarterback, I don't think that this offense is going to be completely flawless. Like I said, go back and watch that Notre Dame game. Like, he was not good. He's coming on probably the best performance of the season, and they'll win against Purdue. And you may think that maybe Ohio State is starting to hit their stride, but I don't know. Like, I still feel like the jury is out on Ohio State this year. I don't really think that this team is as good as what some people think. And I really think that this is going to be a true test for both of these programs, like Penn State really needs a big time win to show everybody that, hey, like it's no longer just a two team race in the Big Ten anymore. Like now we're here. You feel me? And for Ohio State, like you need this win to show that you're still one of the top dogs in the Big Ten because Michigan has overtaken you for that title. They being you two years in a row. So imagine losing to Michigan two years in a row and then losing to Penn State. That's not going to be a good look on Ryan Day. I'm taking Penn State with the upset. I know that they're playing on the road, and it's really tough to pull off an upset on the road unless you're just a really good team 
you're really disciplined and you're really well coached. And I know that James Franklin has gotten out coached in these big time games against Ohio State and Michigan a lot. But I really think with him having Drew Aller, it really changes everything. Like I keep trying to tell people, Drew Aller is more than just the number one quarterback recruit. He's supposed to be the program changer. He's supposed to be that guy who can get Penn State over the top. Anytime Sean Clifford was in a big moment or Trace McSorley was in a big moment, more times than not, they came up small. Drew Aller is supposed to be that guy who can come through in the big moments and make those big throws with two minutes left in the fourth quarter to get you to the win. You see, when Clemson became what they were, well, when they were actually a national championship contender, they're not so much that anymore. They had Deshaun Watson. You know, Todd Boyd was really good, but Deshaun Watson was the program changer. Now, he wasn't, you know, a five-star recruit coming out of high school or anything like that. But when you look at Trevor Lawrence, the fact that Trevor Lawrence was so highly regarded coming out of high school, he really was what helped propel Clemson to being a legitimate contender year after year. And with him being gone, you definitely can see that he definitely has been missed. When you get a guy like Drew Aller in, it changes everything for you. It kind of makes things a little bit easier for a guy like James Franklin that has struggled to find ways to win big games. Like, he doesn't have a great record against top five, top ten teams. We know that. That's well documented. But with him having a transcendent talent at quarterback, Penn State should be able to compete and be able to beat Ohio State and Michigan. And they may not win this game. But I do think that they got a good chance at being able to do so. And I think that they got the same chance to beat Michigan. So I'm going to take Penn State with the upset. I really feel like this is the year that James Franklin and Penn State kind of somewhat break through a little bit. Even if they don't beat Michigan, I at least think that they can beat Ohio State. Ohio State, they just don't look like that same team that we've seen in the past. Like They just don't look like that killer team that we used to see them. Like Anytime you used to play Ohio State... You used to be fearful of them blowing you out and steamrolling you. Like, they didn't steamroll Notre Dame. Notre Dame was fairly competitive against Ohio State. That game came down to the final possession, and it easily could have been won by Notre Dame if the ball would have bounced in their direction. You look at Penn State, the fact that they got a lot of talent on the defensive line, they got a really good offensive line, they got some solid receivers, not great receivers, but you got... Really good running backs, and you got Drew Aller. I think that Drew Aller has his coming out party against Ohio State. Give me Penn State 27-24 final score. I like the Lions or the Nitty Lions to get the victory. Shout out to everybody in the chat. Shout out to my guy, Red Swarm, who says, what's good, JT? Just want to say that I appreciate you and your insights that you share with your followers. Keep up the great work, brother. I appreciate you for the support. Shout out to my guy, Sea Dog, 1983 TV. Lions win this game. My guy Marty says, you jump around so much, man. College football in the NFL, cover every team. It's exhausting. I mean, shoot, man, we just love talking football, man. I mean, you don't love football? I mean, you don't got to watch any. You don't got to watch every video if you don't like it. I mean, you can just watch the team that you just like supporting. Anytime I talk about them, it's like everybody else seems to love the fact that we got a lot of diversity and a lot of variety on the channel like there's nothing wrong with talking both college football and the NFL like I think I do a pretty good job at being able to do both 
I mean, like, if you just want to watch the NFL content, then there's plenty of NFL videos out there. We got over 500 of them. If you want to watch some college football content, there's plenty of college football content. Let's get into our next game. Utah versus USC. USC is coming off a nightmare loss to Notre Dame on the road in South Bend. And Utah is looking to win their third straight game against Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, and the Trojans. You look at Utah. Their offense is a major question mark in this game. You see, last year when Utah played USC, you had Cam Rising. Cam Rising probably is not going to be able to play in this game. And to be honest with you, I don't know if we're going to see Cam Rising even suit up at all at quarterback for the youth this year. And for Utah to be able to win this game, your defense has to play the best game that it has had all season. Now, Utah's defense, to their credit, has been the best in all of the Pac-12. And there's not really a big debate about it. And it's really surprising at the level that this defense has played at considering all the injuries that they suffered. And you got to give a lot of credit to Kyle Whittingham being able to have this team in the position that they are right now, only having one loss with all the injuries that they have. Like they got an injury to Brent Keithy, their best player on offense. Cam Rising is injured. They got injuries on the defensive line. Like Utah is just a beat up team right now, but they're just a scrappy football team. And if USC's offense struggles the way that it did last week against Notre Dame, then this has the potential to be an upset. You see, for Utah, you don't have good quarterback play at all. As a matter of fact, your quarterbacks are a liability. Like, you've been going back and forth between two quarterbacks. For Utah to win this game, they got to have success running the football, which is something that you should be able to do with a really good offensive line against a really questionable Alex Grinch defense. And many people have come after Alex Grinch for how the way this defense has played. For USC, you know, you could easily blow out Utah in this game. And I know Utah fans are going to get upset with that statement, but even though you got a great defense, having a great defense can only keep you in the game so much if your offense is inefficient. And even though USC's defense hasn't played great football up to this point, you don't really have a good enough quarterback to really take advantage of a porous defense. The only way Utah is going to have consistency on offense in this game is if they're able to have success running the football. If you're USC, all you should do is stack the box with seven, eight guys and force Utah to have to beat you through the air with whoever they're going to have back there at quarterback. And not just as Utah lacking in talent at the quarterback department, but the receivers aren't really all that great neither. You see, the formula for Utah being able to win this game is keeping this a low-scoring affair. For USC, if this game ends up getting to the point where you're able to crack 27, it's over for Utah. Utah, we've seen all season struggle to have a lot of success on offense. They're not really good in third down situations. I don't really think that they're all that great at being able to generate big plays in the passing game. Like watching this offense for Utah is kind of like bringing a knife to a sword fight kind of. So for Utah and Kyle Whittingham, they want to keep this game being as low scoring as possible. You got to try to get Caleb Williams making mistakes that he did last week against Notre Dame. Now, I don't know if you're going to be able to get Caleb Williams to throw 
three interceptions like how he did last week because the chances of that happening are pretty slim. And regardless of how Caleb Williams has played against Utah in the past, I mean, it's not like the dude just plays awful anytime he plays Utah. Like, he played pretty well in the Pac-12 championship game prior to him getting injured, and he played well the first time they played last year when Utah came away with the win last second. You look at USC, I definitely feel like they have the talent advantage in this game, but you can't overlook a team like Utah that's super scrappy. Utah is one of those teams that you can never count them out because they may be at a, you know, a disadvantage from a talent standpoint because they're always going to be very well coached. They're not going to beat themselves. They're not going to commit a lot of penalties. They're not going to turn the football over. You're going to have to be Utah being a more disciplined team. And with all the playmakers that USC has on offense, Marshawn Lloyd, the outstanding freshman wide receiver that they have, and Zachariah Branch, there's plenty enough of game changers on this offense that Utah shouldn't really be able to stay in this game. So give me USC with the win. I think that they roll 35-17 to 17 is my final score prediction for this game. It's like, I love Utah. I love Kyle Winningham and everything that he's built up there in Utah. But this offense is not good. And with their quarterback situation, I don't really see how they have much success unless they're able to get that run game going. And even though USC's defense isn't great, I don't think USC's defense is bad enough that they're going to get carved up by whoever Utah's going to have out there at quarterback. Like, Utah's quarterback situation is one of the worst in all of college football. And the only way they can sustain drives is by running the football. Therefore, if USC can come out the gates early and get out to a fast start, and let's say USC goes into halftime with a 21-3 lead and Utah can't run the football and this has to be a game where Utah has to throw the ball to win, Utah, without a doubt, is going to lose. When you watch all of Utah's games, especially the ones where they've struggled on offense, like they've had to find a lot of creative ways to get any kind of yardage at times, like trick plays, reverses. Utah in this game against a high-powered offense, regardless of how bad USC's offensive line may be, the fact that they have Kayla Williams and a good group of skilled players, I think is going to be the reason why USC wins this game. Now, Utah, they should be able to hang around for a couple of quarters, but eventually that defense is probably going to get tired with the offense not being able to, to sustain drives and not being able to be efficient. That's why I'm going to take the Trojans to get a bounce back win. We got Tennessee taking on Alabama. Many of you Tennessee fans have been waiting all season for this game because you remember how you pulled off the upset against Alabama last year. You beat Alabama at home well this time you got to go on the road and beat Alabama and Tuscaloosa now this Alabama team is probably the weakest team that Nick Saban has ever had during his time being the head coach of the Crimson Tide since his first season at Bama I mean I don't know how this team finds ways to win games they just find ways to win this defense has played at a really high level this has been one of the best defenses in all of college football this year and you look at Tennessee offensively, they aren't the explosive offense that they were in 2022. And Joe Milton, he's disappointed me. Okay, I'm going to just be honest with you. I was expecting way more out of Joe Milton this season. I thought that Joe Milton could be a legitimate contender for the Heisman Trophy. Now, he hasn't played bad, 
but he hasn't played great. There definitely has been a tremendous drop-off between the quarterback play that you got out of Hendon Hooker and the current quarterback play that you're getting out of Joe Milton. This offense hasn't been able to generate a lot of explosive plays. Last season, it seemed like Tennessee could generate an explosive play damn near any time they wanted to. Now, Tennessee's defense has been really good this year. And I think that's what's going to give Tennessee a shot at winning this game because you see Alabama is a nine and a half point favorite in this game. And it really surprises me because Alabama, watching them on offense, is pretty tough to watch. Like Jalen Milrow, he has the ability to hit a couple of big plays downfield. He also is a really great athlete with his legs. But against a really good Tennessee defense, I think that we could see Jalen Milrow struggle. And if Jalen Milrow struggles, then Alabama is going to be in for a defensive slugfest. And this probably is going to be one of those games that comes down to whoever is able to get the 20 points first. You see, Joe Milton and company, I don't really think they trust him that much. I think that Josh Hyper and company are going to want to establish the run game early, try to get Alabama's home crowd out of it a little bit, try to take a lot of time off the clock. Because, you see, here's the good thing if you're Josh Heupel. Even though your offense has struggled, I think that you like your offense a lot more than you like Alabama's offense in this game. You see, Tennessee, we know that they're going to be able to get some points on the board. Alabama, I don't know, man. Sometimes it's it's hit or miss with Jalen Milrow. Like, sometimes he can be really good. He does throw a pretty nice deep ball at times, but his decision-making is not great. He doesn't really go through all his progressions. He will overlook wide-open wide receivers. He'll overthrow wide-open wide receivers. It's just like Jalen Milrow is hot and cold. And Joe Milton, I don't think he's hot and cold as much as Jalen Milrow is. I just think at times it takes Joe Milton a little bit a time to get going into the game. And depending on how Joe Milton starts this game, if he starts this game out hot, I think he'll carry that throughout the whole entire game. But if he starts this game out cold, then I think he'll probably play the whole entire game cold. I think if you're Josh Heupel, you need to establish the run game and try to get Joe Milton going early. And then see if you can get some play action going. See if you can try to get some big plays downfield using the play action pass game. Like, if you're Tennessee, you got to find a way to play true to your identity. And I don't think that Tennessee's offense this season has been playing true to their identity. Like against Florida, it was hard to watch the Vols offense against Florida. A Florida defense that, by the way, has given up plenty of big plays. So... When you're going up against a defense like Alabama, yeah, you're probably going to struggle. But the fact that Alabama's offense is probably going to struggle just as much as you are is what gives this game a chance to be won if you're a Vols fan. And I'm surprised that Alabama is nearly a 10-point favorite in this game. I thought that Bama was only going to be a 3-point favorite in this game. Although Alabama has the significant talent advantage, I think that with the way Alabama's offense has played this season— struggling just to get the 24 points, it gives Tennessee a great shot to win. And when I watched Alabama against Arkansas, they were all big on Arkansas. But then their offense went cold and it allowed Arkansas to get back into the game. You see, I don't think this way of winning football games for Alabama is sustainable with how this offense performs at times. Like 24 points, and today's age of college football is not that great. 
And when you got an offense that's inconsistent and is inefficient, it puts your defense on the field for more plays than what they would like to be. And if Tennessee can get their high-tempo, fast-paced offense going and they can start wearing down that Alabama defense, that can potentially set Tennessee up to throw some potential haymakers later on in this game. I mean, we know that Joe Milton has the talent to be a game changer. It's just that he hasn't really been all that consistent. So I ask y'all this. Who do you think is going to be the more consistent quarterback in this game? Do you think that it's going to be Joe Milton? Or do you think that it's going to be Jalen Milrow? Now, me personally, I kind of have a little bit more faith in Jalen Milrow just because he's a little bit of a better athlete than what Joe Murrow, than what Joe Milton is. As a matter of fact, he's not even a little bit of a better athlete. He's just way better of an athlete than what Joe Milton is. But you see, here's the thing. I think that Joe Milton is a better thrower of the football than what Jalen Milrow is. Jalen Milrow, his accuracy is hit or miss, especially when it comes to throwing the deep ball. Like, he can hit the deep ball, but he can't work the short intermediate passing game at all. He overlooks wide receivers constantly. He, he just doesn't look like a natural quarterback back there. And I really think that's what hinders this Alabama offense. And Alabama's offensive line hasn't really done the brother any favors neither. And Tennessee's defensive line has been arguably the best in the SEC this year. They can get pressure on the quarterback, and they're pretty styled against the run too. So if you're Alabama, if you can't run the football at all, how are you going to find a way to put some points up on the board offensively? Because this isn't the same Tennessee defense that you saw last year. Hell, I didn't even think that Tennessee's defense was as bad as what people made it out to be. Like, this is the same defense that shut down Kentucky and LSU on the road in Death Valley last year. People overlooked that. They don't talk about that. Tennessee's defense is really legit. It's just that for Alabama, you know, one factor that you do have on your side, outside of your great defense, even if your offense struggles, you're going to have the home field advantage. You didn't have that last year. And I don't care how you feel about Alabama. You can say that they're not as good as what they used to be or whatever. Playing in Tuscaloosa is still a tough place to walk away with a victory. And regardless, not every team can win in Tuscaloosa. You got to be a championship caliber football team to beat Alabama at home. And I don't think Tennessee is that. You see, Texas beat Alabama just because Alabama's offense just couldn't hang around with Texas offense. You see, it doesn't matter how good your defense is if your offense can't help you play complimentary style football. You see, Alabama's defense can keep them around, but if Tennessee's offense can get clicking and they can start rolling and get in stride and get in rhythm with Joe Milton, this could be a game that could be a lot of trouble for Alabama. Like, Texas, they were able to win that game pretty convincingly because they just had a really good offense. You see, Tennessee's offense has the potential to be really good. And if Tennessee's offense just wakes up in this game, I think Alabama probably loses, regardless of how good their defense plays. Like, your defense can only do so much if your offense is ineffective. And Alabama's offense is going up against one of the best defenses that they've seen since they have played Texas. Alabama's offense hasn't seen a defense as good as Tennessee ever since they lost to the Longhorns at home. I'm taking Alabama to win this game still. It's still really hard to win on the road in Bryant-Denny Stadium, playing in Tuscaloosa. It's a place that not a lot of teams are going to be able to win. 
And the same way I felt about Ole Miss going into this game, it's the same way I feel about Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee has a great offense, but at the end of the day, when you play on the road in Tuscaloosa, it's just a different animal. I don't know what it is about playing in Bryant-Denny Stadium that makes it so hard to win at, but it's just something magical anytime you play Alabama in this stadium. And last year, Tennessee had the luxury of being able to beat Alabama in their hometown, in their home stadium. And the only two losses that Alabama suffered last season was on the road. You're not Texas. Tennessee is nowhere as good as what Texas is, but they don't have to be. Because any given Saturday, any upset is capable of being able to take place. But if you're telling me that Tennessee is going to be able to do something that only, what, three or four teams have been able to do in the last seven, eight years? I don't know about that, man. Like, you got to be a really good football team to be able to beat Alabama on the road. And I don't think Tennessee is as good as what they were last year. Like, if this was last year's Tennessee team going up against this year's Alabama team, I would like Tennessee by 20. But the fact that Tennessee's offense has been inconsistent and they have struggled to generate big plays and Joe Milton has kind of been hit or miss at times, like as long as Alabama's defense is as good as what they have been up to this point, I think Jalen Milrow is going to be able to break off a couple of big runs and they can get a couple of big throws downfield. The key for Alabama is make sure that you don't get too far behind the chains. Try to avoid being put in third and long situations. You got to make sure that you win on the early downs. So give me the Crimson Tide to get the win. This is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. My guy, Joel Hama, says if UT shuts down Burton and Milton can throw a couple of good balls, Tennessee for sure wins. Yeah, like, I kind of came close to picking Tennessee to win, but... It's just that when I look at Alabama's defense, although Tennessee's defense has played at a really high level, Alabama's defense has been a top five defense. This is one of the best defenses that Nick Saban has had in a while. And this is kind of the formula of them winning. You know, like they're not going to blow you out anymore. Like they're going to be in a lot of tough one possession games that are going to give a lot of Alabama fans anxiety. But at the end of the day, when you got a great defense, they can bail you out even if your offense does struggle. If they can come away with a couple of turnovers and they can put Alabama's offense in favorable field position, that could be the difference. But this is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. If you enjoyed, give us a five-star review. We're not just a YouTube channel. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from. You can find the JT Sports Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the channel. Turn on post notifications so you don't miss when we go live and drop new content. And I will see you guys with another episode of the JT Sports Podcast shortly.